Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Heredity Podcast. In the show this month, the hunt for intrinsic incompatibilities in a hybrid lineage of fish and the merits of remnant trees in agroecosystems. I'm Jeff Marsh. First up, I spoke to Arne Nolter at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology in Plun, Germany. He's been studying two species of freshwater fish from the streams of Germany and Belgium that form hybrid lineages and narrow hybrid zones. In order to gain more of an insight into how new species form, Arne and his team were interested to find out about the barriers to reproduction and specifically to test for evidence of intrinsic barriers in the parental genomes. Here's Arne. Well, they're commonly known as Miller stump or scalpin. They're small freshwater fishes that live on the bottom of streams. About 30 years ago, they suddenly appeared in the lower reaches of the River Rhine. And this was a habitat that was not so much a typical habitat for these fishes. And we studied them genetically, and it turned out that the ones that showed up in the new habitats in the downstream reaches of the River Rhine, that those were hybrids between two previously separated species. Right, and it's thought that these hybrids are relatively very, very young in an evolutionary sense. That's true. Um, if we look at the parental species, they have been separated for one or two million years, and they are living in different river basins. And the connection between these river basins has probably only emerged about 200 years ago when Napoleon started to dig canals connecting the River Rhine and the River Shelter Basin. And one likely scenario is that these hybrids that we now have emerged only after these river basins became connected. So this is kind of an ideal natural experiment, if you like, of the early stages of hybrid speciation. Exactly. It's a study system where all the evidence we have indicates they're very young. It's, of course, a situation where hybrid speciation or hybridization is going on currently. It's a process that's not finished. It's not over yet. And actually, we don't know where it's going. Uh, we can just see the degree of differentiation that we have now, and we can imagine that this could lead to a fully differentiated hybrid species at some point. Okay, and so the, the crux of this is that you want to decipher the precise mechanisms that, that cause and maintain this, this hybrid zone, because there are two schools of thought, right? Basically, if we consider the parental species species, we could ask ourselves how comes they're separated or, or what permits them to hybridize. And the parental species are basically separated geographically. The other option that could keep them separate gene pools is that there are intrinsic barriers to reproduction. 
that is hybrids when they occur are not viable and this is exactly what we've tested in the current study where we have crossed the parental species and tested whether the hybrids that come out of these crosses suffer any intrinsic inviabilities because if this occurred this would of course be an important factor to model and understand how this hybrid species has emerged in the first place. Right, so you are comparing the fitness of these F2 hybrids against different regions of the parental genome, sort of hunting for some sort of hint of incompatibility. Exactly. The nice thing is that the parental species are fairly well genetically differentiated. So if I sequence a bit of DNA, I'm very likely to find an ancestry informative marker that tells me this fragment comes from species A or species B. If now I study many of these F2 hybrids that we've generated in the lab and uh, genotype them for many genetic markers across the whole genome, I can find whether certain genotype combinations coming from either one or two of the parental species are less viable than others. We would simply see a distortion from the expected Mendelian inheritance, and this is what we've tested. Right, and were there any very obvious targets? Were there any combinations of the parental genomes that were, you know, obviously missing from this F2 group? No, we did not have any candidates on our mind when we started the study. And what we describe is that, yes, we do see some subtle effects, but these effects are not common to all mapping families, um, and they're not replicated in a systematic fashion, such that you would say there's always a certain genomic region that causes problems. It's in, in different families, it's different regions, and there are some, some, some regions that cause small effects, but it's all very subtle and it varies between families. Okay, so there were no blatant markers then of incompatibility from the parental species, but you did find some interesting things out about the sex determination system. Exactly. This was one thing that we had not expected. The background of this is that Haldane's rule predicts that the heterogametic sex of a species is the one that suffers first from incompatibilities when species diverge. So in order to test whether this applies in our study system, we set out to identify the sex determination mode in our fish, and we have simply identified the gender of the F2 mapping family offspring. And what we found is first that being a male or a female did not affect the survival of the F2 offspring and neither of the F1 offspring, of course. And this basically suggests that Haldane's rule does not play a role. But what's interesting in our study system is that the two parental species, although they're relatively young, they have different genomic regions that cause the development of the male sex. And this indicates that the genetic basis for sex determination evolves very rapidly, so rapidly that between the two parental species it already differs. And do you think that could be the, the, the secret behind why this flies in the face of Haldane's rule? 
Well, it's well known that for Haldane's rule to work, it needs some time. It needs a heterogametic region of some size that needs some time to become degenerate, to lose some genetic content for the whole underlying genetic mechanisms to work. And this takes time to evolve. So if in our study species we have very rapidly changing regions in the genome that cause the male sex, they're simply too young and too small to become large, to become a fully developed Y chromosome as we would see it in humans or mice. In the fish, it's just tiny regions that are too small to become major drivers for uh, speciation in our system. And finally, I mean, we mentioned at the beginning that there were almost two schools of thought, uh, one thinking that it was extrinsic versus intrinsic barriers that maintained these early hybrid zones. Do you think these, these results shed any light on that? Well, I think this is uh, our study is a, a case study that has now provided data on the intrinsic side. And we know from previous studies that extrinsic mechanisms seem to matter a lot. For our case, we have, I think, stronger and stronger evidence that extrinsic uh, processes seem to matter more. And I believe to generalize from this, we have to simply study more systems and species. Next, I spoke to David Beauchier from the University of Oxford. He and his team have been studying the effects of fragmentation on the health of populations of a neotropical tree called Pachyra kinata in Costa Rica. This highly valued tree has lost most of its natural habitat, but remains scattered throughout agricultural land. David and his team studied the effects of isolation and breeding systems on this tree's reproduction in order to feed into the debate on the value of leaving remnant trees in agroecosystems. Here's David. We get a lot of land clearance for various reasons, often agriculture, and we end up with little patches of forest. And a lot of what's taught in terms of conservation is that the bigger the patches that are left, the better. But in quite a few ecosystems around the world, we don't have any large patches left. Uh, what we have are very small fragments. And so generally, what sorts of threats does fragmentation pose for the populations in these fragments? One is obviously that we lose particular populations that are occurring in the deforested area. And then within the fragments, the actual population sizes become smaller. That then opens up possibilities of inbreeding with the remnant trees that are there. What they end up doing is mating with themselves and therefore the seed that results from that can suffer impacts of inbreeding depression. Now, as you mentioned, we're talking about agroecosystems here, land that is used for agriculture but is left with some remnant trees. Um, once it's been used for agriculture, why are we worried about other native species? Aren't they a lost cause? Well, this is, should we say, one of the um, fundamental areas of interest and perhaps disagreement. Back in the 80s, uh, Dan Jansen, a well-known ecologist and conservationist from the States, described these sorts of remnant trees as the living dead. Basically, although they were physiologically alive, 
they didn't reproduce or if they did reproduce the um, seeds that were produced never produced a new generation because they were eaten up by cows or they were mowed down or uh, this sort of impact more positive viewpoint was that they could actually be mediators of pollen flow between fragments of forest but also that they could contribute in terms of increasing population size and for some species in certain areas certainly of central america in the dry forest they became the only individuals that were left of these species and so can you combine human populations with these tree populations in a viable sense. So the jury's still kind of out on the value of leaving these remnant individuals in these agro-ecosystems. And the tree that you were looking at was this bat-pollinated neotropical species, Pachyra kinata. Tell me about that. The sites where we were working constituted a range of different types of fragmented landscapes from one extreme, which would be uh, a more undisturbed dry forest in a protected area in Costa Rica, to an area only about five kilometers away, which was completely deforested for cattle ranching. Uh, and there were only a few remnant trees of Pacara Kinata left within those pastures. Okay, but you're also looking at the breeding system that it employed. Trees tend to be uh, highly outcrossed to maintain genetic diversity uh, and different species have different types of incompatibility mechanism to reduce the chances of selfing occurring. So what we were seeing in particular in the case of Pacara kinata is a labile type of incompatibility system which meant that some trees could self, whereas other trees, no matter how much you put self-pollen on them, don't appear to be able to self. And so how was the sort of mating success of this tree affected by, first of all, by the fragmentation itself? As the spatial isolation of individual trees increased, the overall rate of inbreeding increased within the population. And so one would expect that it would be the trees that were more spatially isolated, which would be the ones that were actually showing the inbreeding. But when we analyzed that, we found that that actually wasn't the case. There was no relationship in these pasture trees between the degree of spatial isolation and the degree of inbreeding that they were showing. And what we found that it was related to the degree of self-incompatibility that existed within each individual tree. As they become more spatially isolated, that ability to self has a chance to express itself. And so that's why we see this increase uh, in inbreeding in these uh, more isolated trees. Okay, so there's not a sort of direct response of the tree to its level of isolation. It's just a, a probability effect. Exactly. It's a reflection of the amount of self-pollen that is out there in the environment and compared to cross-pollen and the ability of the pollinators to transfer that. And given the results of this study then, how suitable do you think that our current models of fragmentation are in terms of conservation strategies? 
when when we started out this research some years ago, um, the general idea was that as fragmentation increased, you would reach some sort of cutoff point beyond which there would be actual isolation. So the pollinators uh, would not be moving across that uh, degree of fragmentation. I think what's come out of some studies we've done and, and a number of other researchers over the last 10 years is that that is too simplistic a viewpoint. Studies have moved over large distances of fragmentation and have generally not found any isolation. Uh, so they found the pollinators moving over large distances, uh, kilometers, tens of kilometers. So that view of spatial isolation is not valid. But what we have seen is that the impacts of fragmentation do occur, and we see them in more subtle ways. We see changes in patterns of pollination actually occurring, even though there isn't isolation. So we see some increases in, in breeding, some increases in movement of pollinators over greater distances. So the impacts are more subtle and they vary from species to species depending on the characteristics of the reproductive biology of individual species. I think there are two main areas where this has applicability. One is that uh, one needs to be careful when collecting seed from uh, these types of isolated trees and then using them in uh, restoration projects, growing them up in nurseries for reforestation because you may have increased levels of inbreeding, which means that your seedlings are not as vigorous as uh, they should be. And that can bring problems to your restoration or reforestation efforts. The other sort of impact is in how we value trees in, in a landscape. And I think some trees still do have value for some species. They are mediators of pollen flow between remnant fragments. And as such, they play an important role in the conservation of some species in these highly fragmented landscapes. I think it's important for conservation bodies to recognize that in some ecosystems, just setting up reserves in situ conservation areas is no longer an option because they don't have big areas of forest to conserve anymore. And they should be looking and working with, uh, shall we say, development organizations to look at the capacity to conserve through farmer work in these types of agro-ecosystems. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.